something the podcast where i research something that i think is really cool or interesting or what have you and you know hopefully you think it's cool too i'm melissa and i'm everett so this is our 50th episode mm-hmm. of teach me something is that like semi-centennial semi doesn't sound right oh i don't know okay. maybe who knows I think the important thing is that on the very first ever episode of this podcast, we spent some time talking about the interests that we had and what we'd, you know, maybe do episodes about in the future. And, um, well, you haven't done one yet. It's so, true. <laughs> but I, I definitely mentioned in my interests, like food or food history or something. It's true. And, um, I hadn't found a way to actually kind of make an interesting, cohesive, uh, food topic for the podcast yet. Sure. Uh, So for our 50th episode, I've finally figured one out, which I think is exciting. Food. Um, Well. No, no. I I don't see how we could only talk for an hour about all the food ever. Yeah, that'd be tough. So instead we're, as you have seen already from the title. Yes. Which we will write after recording this, and I'm sure it'll be a good, interesting, funny title. And very succinct. Um, we're going to talk about salt. Uh, and it's been much more interesting than I would have even imagined before I started learning about it. Sure. Um, so just to give some credit where credit is definitely due, a lot of this information uh, comes from author Mark Kurlansky, specifically his books Salt and cod a biography of the fish that changed the world i mean only a little bit came from the cod one but still okay. sure. still i would say that they're very interesting books uh especially if you're into the kind of like guns germs and steel like how certain specific things kind of change history or right uh whatever what have you okay well how about you teach me something yes i would like to okay so when I say salt, let's clarify. Mm. We're talking about NaCl, table salt. Um, but there are lots of other types of salts. Yes. Uh, not in common parlance, of course, but no. in chemistry, a salt is just a chemical compound that has a positively charged cation, negatively charged anion come together to make a no electrical charge compound mm. is the basic definition of a salt. I thought it um, also had to dissolve in water. Uh, I think that that's ionic. Don't all ionic. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, fair enough. Ionic assembly of those things. Um, I don't know. I went on lots of chemistry sites and that's okay. the definition. That might be I the definition. Came sure. away with. Um, but NaCl is obviously what we mean when we're talking about salt. Yeah. You just say salt. That's what you mean. So Na, of course, is sodium. Which is actually a metal, if you did not know that. Yeah. Um, it's an alkali metal, which means it's highly reactive to things. Like it'll burst into flames if you throw some pure sodium into water. Yep. Um, it's not the most reactive alkali metal, but there are some cool videos of it bursting into flames. You know, it's a fun air experiment. Water. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
chlorine. It's a yellow-green gas that's very extremely poisonous. Uh, if it enters your body, it's going to react with water to produce acids. And those acids are going to be corrosive and wreak havoc, you know, on yourself. Yep. So, you know, it's one of those funny things about chemistry, right? You take a highly reactive, flammable metal, stick it onto a deadly gas, and now you have a extremely stable compound that's actually necessary for humans and all other mammals to live. Yep. Fun stuff. Uh, Here's a fun fact. It's the only rock that humans eat. Oh, it's considered a rock. It is considered a rock. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Um, So we use salt in tons of body processes, breathing and digestion, transporting nutrients and oxygen, uh, conducting nerve impulses, balancing fluids, maintaining blood pressure. Like it's, it's very, it's very important. Um, an adult human will have about 250 grams of salt in their body at any one time. Um, and if you need to picture that, that's like three of those classic glass diner salt shakers full of salt. Okay. Yeah. Um, salt has obviously been very important throughout history. Um, wars, revolutions, dynasties, all based on salt. So, you know, I want to get into that because it's, like I said, it's so cool. Of course. Um, so the four most common ways that we find salt in nature are like either it's just sitting there on the ground, like dried up salt beds, basically, um, in the ocean, which doesn't surprise anyone again. No. Uh, underground springs and underground rocks. So humans first found salt lying on the surface of the land where like ancient salt lakes had dried up. Um, Other animals were obviously the first to discover these places and we just kind of followed them. So salt licks is is what they'd be referred to. Animals just go lick the ground. They get their salt that way. And humans kind of just scraped it off the ground. The earliest recorded collection of salt by humans was around 6,000 BCE. Um, where they would scrape uh, Lake Yuncheng in northern China for salt in the drier summer months. Cool. Uh, obviously, the most plentiful source of salt is the ocean. Right. Um, but, of course, you have to boil seawater for a really long time to evaporate the water away and have just salt crystals left over. Yeah. Um, and you would need to boil a lot of water away to get useful amounts of salt and... That's really resource intensive. You know, you're, you're using a lot of fuel, like wood, peat, coal, whatever you're using to make yeah. the fire. And oftentimes that fuel was more valuable than the salt. So that's not a good method or wasn't a good method. So one solution that ancient humans used is kind of enclosing seawater in man-made ponds at the edge of oceans, mm-hmm. seas, um, and then just let the sun evaporate it for them. Yeah. And then um, harvest it later. Yeah, it's a really, really slow process. Like, it can take up to a year to get... But you get a lot of salt in the end. Um, but, you know, it only takes a few hours to set up. You know, get some people, get some rocks, get some clay, get some sand, you know. And then you don't really have to do anything. Sure. So the resources required aren't, aren't high. Um, so another source is mining rocks from underground. Like, there's lots of salt deposits all over the world but like for instance in the u.s uh there's large deposits in louisiana and texas today it's mined in under cleveland and detroit um so the 
Goderick salt mine, run by Compass Minerals, is 1,800 feet. Oh, I usually try to convert everything to metric, and I forgot to do that that time. Mm. I'm so sorry, everybody. Ouch. 1,800 feet. Sorry. Okay. Under Lake Huron, it's the largest underground salt mine in the world. Cool. Um, and it is as deep as the CN Tower is tall. CN Tower in Toronto, for anyone that doesn't know. So Yeah, that's a cool picture. Yeah. Um, that was started in 1959, so and it's still operating today. Um, and, and the mines are all very different. Uh, they can be black or gray or like snow white, uh, or they can have kind of white stripes. There's a mine in Cardona, Spain that has brightly colored stripes. Um, some of have like underground rivers and lakes in the mines. Uh, one mine in Southern Poland even has these like big ornate rooms that they've carved out of the salt. Uh, the pictures are really cool if you look that up. So, as you know, early humans are hunter-gatherer people. Right. You know, we did not start out farming. Uh, when we were hunter-gatherers, we would eat animals. Mm-hmm. And through eating animals, we got the salt that we needed. Okay. But once people settled and the agrarian revolution happened and people started growing more crops... Um, we weren't getting enough salt. Vegetables and grains don't have salt. Um, so salt has to be obtained in a different way. And farmers are starting to raise animals. Farmers need to give salt to their animals as well. Like, um, so, you know, we've got cats or cats, cattle, <laughs> goats, sheep, and pigs mostly that, you know, we need to provide the salt for. Um in fact, it's thought one of the ways wild animals were first tamed is by farmers offering them salt. And then the animals would hang around people more and more as they learned humans were a sure source of salt. Cool. So once farmers um, had these communities, then they could trade and sell things. And salt was one of the most valuable items because, well, food spoils. There's no refrigeration. No. We have no methods of preservation. And I don't, like, we don't know when humans first discovered this, but salt is an excellent method of preserving food because it draws out moisture and um, either kills bacteria or just kind of prevents their growth. Um, not that early humans knew about bacteria, but they just knew this worked. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, they would add salt to milk and cream, turn it into cheese. Mm-hmm. Cabbage cures into sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. I know you like your sauerkraut. I do. Cucumbers yeah. cure into pickles, of course. Meat. That's good too. Into you know ham, bacon. They would make salt fish is a hugely important food throughout history, um, and that meant for the first time people could start now making longer journeys and move farther away from their settlements. Uh, so this opens up the possibility of international and long-distance trade. Right. So that's very important for humanity. Uh, salt kind of starts to become equated with power. On every continent, like in most every century, until very recently, um, the dominant people are going to be the ones that control the salt trade. Okay. Uh, so today, the largest salt producer is the U.S., not that I think that that's the cause of their international <laughs> sure. power or position. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> like I said, I don't think the pattern completely holds up in modern day. Um, but that definitely used to be the case for the longest time throughout history. So let's talk about some salt dynasties. 
So the ancient Chinese built the first real salt empire. Um, in 2000 BC, we have the earliest records of the Chinese preserving fish with salt. Um, and we know that in 1800 BCE, BC, the Chinese began evaporating seawater. And like I said earlier, we knew that as early as 600 BC, they were scraping lake beds for salt. Um, but salt, like I said, is also found in underwater springs. So in 200 BCE, there is a man named Li Bing, who was the governor of the Sichuan province in central China. And he discovered uh, that there was springs of salty water under the earth. Um, and it's, it's saltier water than the ocean. Okay. So it doesn't take as long or like take as much fuel to evaporate that water and, and uh, come up with some salt. So to get at the springs, the Chinese started drilling holes into the earth by pounding long iron chisels. Um, then they would take long bamboo tubes, lower it on ropes into the holes and to get the seawater out or salt water out, sorry. Um, but it turned out to be pretty dangerous. So sometimes the workers drilling the holes would get really sick and they didn't know why. Okay. Sometimes flames would start spitting out of the holes. Always fun. Occasionally a huge eruption would come out of the hole and kill all the workers. Yeah. Um, so the people of Sichuan couldn't really explain these things. So they decided there must be dragons under the earth guarding the precious salt. Totally on board um, with that, yeah. It's China. This all makes sense, right? Yeah. So <laughs> by about 100 CE, the Chinese started to understand that this was not dragons. Spoilers. Dragons didn't do it. Okay, fine. They realized there was some kind of invisible substance in the holes that were travel it was traveling up the pipes. So what they started to do was they constructed these houses around the pipes and they used the houses to boil the seawater. So they would light the end of the pipes on fire mm -hmm. um, and use those flames to just boil the water that came out. So it's okay. kind of a double double yeah. duty there. And so this is the earliest known use of natural gas. Right. Which is what they discovered, um, which is, you know, a colorless, odorless gas made of hydrocarbons, mostly methane. Mostly methane, yeah. Yeah. So the Chinese rulers understood how valuable salt was. So they made rules that only the government could produce and sell it. Um, then they could raise the price of salt whenever they wanted, needed more money. So Makes for sense. example... Uh, during the Tang Dynasty, so now we're, that's 618 to 907 CE, half the money earned by the Chinese government came from salt. Wow, that's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. Uh, salt paid for the Great Wall of China. Salt paid for the Chinese army. Um, people really didn't like kind of the arbitrary price increases of salt, though. I can imagine. Uh, like throughout Chinese history, rulers would become unpopular and popular cyclically due to their overcharging of salt. Um, but the Chinese didn't actually season their food with salt much. They, not directly anyways. Okay. They steamed fresh whole soybeans to soften them. They spread them on these large straw trays. Then they added yeast and put the trays in dark rooms until mold forms on top. Then they mixed the beans with salt water and stored them in crock jars and fermented them for about a year. And then they okay. took like the mud mixture that came out and they filtered it through like this system of pipes and they sterilized it with steam. Then, you know, they just 
diluted it various amount depending on their taste, and they would use the soy sauce to season their food. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of how they consumed most of the salt they ate. Um, more recently in China, in 1835, again in Sichuan, um, the Shenhai Salt Spring Well was drilled at just over a thousand meters deep. And that was the deepest well ever in the world until the modern oil rigs came along and were invented. Yeah, okay. Makes yeah, sense. so they continued kind of, they continued with the salt, the salt thing. Um, next, we have Egypt. Sure. And they were the first to produce salted food on a, a large scale. Um, they really depended on salted fish and salted meat to survive during droughts when the crops didn't have a good year. Um, and you know, as we, we've talked about this in our mummy episode, um, they, salt was crucial to making mummies and Egyptian tombs were found like filled with urns of preserved foods, like salted foods, uh, meant to help the dead on their journey through to the underworld. Right. Um, so they got most of their salt from the African desert past the Nile where they found dry lake beds covered with salt and scraped them. Um, because salt is like... I, I know it doesn't seem heavy, but, you know, it yeah. can get heavy. Sure. So, so ships were, were normally how you transported it. Um, like, you'd, you'd make salt near ports on purpose and put it on a ship. They didn't have that option, obviously. No. So what they did instead, in the Saharan Desert, they used huge caravans of camels to carry the salt. Um, they would take these large slabs or cone-shaped blocks of salt and wrap them in straw. And then they would travel hundreds of miles across the desert uh, later, they'd go all over Africa. Um, cities like Timbuktu, which is in current day Mali, by the way. Mali was a huge salt producing area. Um, they would just trade the salt blocks directly for gold. Um, the first camel caravans carrying salt were around 300 CE. Um, and speaking of the Sahara, jumping forward a little bit in time again. In 1352, Ibn Battuta, who was an Arab explorer that wrote a very famous uh, account of all his travels, uh, found a Saharan city made almost entirely of salt called Teghaza, also kind of in the Mali area. He didn't like it there, though. No? He really, really didn't. He said even the water there was salty. He was, <laughs> sure. he was just, he was unhappy, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so moving, moving along here in history, uh, to the Celts. Okay. So... 3,000 years ago, the Celts were mining rock salt in Central Europe. Um, they became powerful by selling salt and salted foods all along the rivers of Europe. Um, salt was so important to the Celts, they, they would name places after it. So, for example, there was a town named Hallein, meaning salt work. And that was by the city of Salzburg, which oh. is still a place, I think. Yeah, that's a place. Sure. Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, it means salt town, if you were wondering. Yeah, I was going to say it's not very imaginative, I guess, but still good. I don't think they were going for some sort of imaginative city naming. No, or... I don't think that in general, uh, I shouldn't say that. There's that a lot the of times where there's, yeah, lots of times where naming of cities or, or places is fairly literal. Yes. So one of the Celts' most famous products was ham. They're famous for their ham. They, you know, made by salting the thigh meat of pigs. If right. you didn't know, it's thigh meat. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, so the best ham was given to the bravest warriors. Oh, okay. If two warriors claimed rights to the ham, then they would have to fight over it, have a battle over it. Hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and even after the Celts lost control of Central Europe and the salt mines were abandoned, the countries where they lived became known for love of ham. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, ham's great. Yes. Um, so, here's a fun thing. In 1573, there was a perfectly preserved body of a man wearing bright red wool plaid clothing and this, like, conical-shaped felt hat um, found in the Austrian Alps lying next to a miner's pickaxe. And the people that found him were kind of surprised by this because Europeans at that time, at least, did not wear colored clothing or brightly colored clothing. So eventually scientists figure out that he was a Celtic salt miner who'd become trapped in a collapsed salt mine shaft, maybe around 350 or 400 BCE, like a long, a yeah, long, long time, time ago. ago. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, salt's really good yeah, at making say preserving him. mummies. Yeah. <laughs> so several prehistoric salt mummies were discovered in Europe around that time period, like 1500, 1600s. Um, and more recently, several more salt mummies were discovered in a salt mine in northern Iran. So the four mummies discovered in the Iranian Sher Abad salt mine um, in 1993 and 2004 were discovered with like wool and leather clothes and the remains of their tools all pretty well preserved. So that was cool because their archaeologists are still kind of studying them. Um, And you would not be surprised to hear the Romans on this list of salt dynasties. No, that's really not surprising. I mean, I would assume that any... Mm, force or dynasty that was in power for a long time probably yeah i started this off by saying that if you controlled salt you were yeah. a dominant people so exactly from the beginning of the empire salt was a key to rome's power um roman cities were all like founded near salt works um one of the great roman roads was the via salaria which is the salt road I mean, if I'm going to say it in Latin, I have to say via salaria because they don't say V's like that, but I always right. feel funny saying via. <laughs> Anyways, um, it was originally built to bring salt to Rome from the nearby salt works at Ostia. So Ostia was one of those seaside ponds we talked about. It was the Rome's first salt works uh, established in 640 BCE. Okay. So via salaria heads northeast out of Rome. Until mm-hmm. it hits the Adriatic Sea on mm-hmm. the east coast of Italy yeah. and then runs north along the coast. And there is still some remains of the road, like in the mountain sections of the road in Italy today, which is cool. Very cool. <laughs> so the Romans believed everyone had a right to salt. So unlike the Chinese emperors, the Roman rulers didn't try to own all the salt. They did still control the price of it, though. <laughs> okay, So. Sure. They tried to keep prices low to keep people happy. They had, quote, common salt, which would just have been served in a simple seashell in the lower class households or, you know, middle class households. And in the wealthy places used this ornate silver dish to serve their salt in. Um, they did occasionally tax it to raise money for their armies, Um Like, for example, 264 to 146 BCE, when the Romans were fighting the Punic Wars against Carthage, they would impose salt taxes or raise salt taxes to raise money for the wars. But um, they also were very aware of public perception. So, for example, Emperor Augustus liked to give out free salt when he wanted to win over public support for something. Okay. Like going to war. Yeah, makes sense. (laughs) Um, So the Latin word for salt is salt, S-A-L. Yeah. 
Um, and it's the root of our current English words salary and soldier because oh. Roman soldiers were often paid insult. That was their salary. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and that's also where the expression worth his salt comes from. Someone's worth their salt. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Makes sense. The word salad also comes from salt. Mm. Because, what, what, what is that expression? I'm just trying for? to uh, imagine just like a nice bed of lettuce with just salt topping on it. The Romans ate their greens with a dressing that was like seawater based. Mm, which okay. is where it comes from. They can be if allowed to do the that. Italian, if you've been to an Italian restaurant and there's a section that's called insalata, like yeah. salads. Okay. Salt. Yeah, it comes from that. Fine. So salt was central to everyday Roman life. Um, along the Mediterranean Sea, the Romans used it to produce three very valuable products. A fish sauce, a salt fish, and a purple dye. Mm. Now, again, I thought this was highly appropriate because in our very first ever episode, we talked about this purple dye. We did. Yeah. So nice throwback here, I think. The Romans had a myth where purple dye was discovered by Hercules when he was walking his dog by the sea. The myth goes that he bit into a murex sea snail, which is a predatory sea snail, which is the first thing in the name of our first ever episode. Yeah. Um, and the dog's mouth turned a strange dark purple color. So our favorite, my favorite, probably Everett's favorite Roman historian. I don't know if he's got many other contenders for favorite Roman historian, but Pliny the Elder. Mm-hmm. He wrote, quote, The most favorable season for taking these shellfish is after the rising of the dog store, or else before spring... For when they have once discharged their waxy secretion, their juices have no consistency. This, however, is a fact unknown in the dyer's workshops, although it is a point of primary importance. After it is taken, the vein is extracted, which we have previously spoken of, to which it is requisite to add salt. A sextarius to every hundred pounds of juice. Now, I looked this up, and a sextarius is 546 milliliters. Oh. Okay. You know, like two cups of salt to 100 pounds yeah. of juice. Sure. I wanted to include that because that's the recipe. There you go. Very good. Now you know how. some snails. Yeah. Which really smelled bad. If you go back to our first episode, Correct. you'll yeah. hear that it smells really bad. Um, the fish sauce they made was called garum. And it was made by placing leftover fish scraps like innards and gills and tails um, in earthen jars with salt into they fermented into a fishy smelling liquid. So ketchup, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll learn later that that's basically, that was ketchup. Yep. If you're confused, then you might have to listen to the end of our episode. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Romans would use the garum like the Chinese use soy sauce. They added it to their food instead of salt. Okay. But it wasn't only for eating because Pliny lists a lot of medical uses. Uh, of course. He's wrong, but he does list them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's go for it. Yeah. I'm going to do another Pliny quote here. Quote. It is curative of scab in sheep, incisions being made in the skin and the liquor poured therein. It is useful also for the cure of wounds inflicted by dogs or by the sea dragon, the Mm. application being made with lint. Recent burns, too, are healed by the agency of garum, due care being taken to apply it without mentioning it by name. Oh. (laughs) I don't know why. It is useful, too, for bites inflicted by dogs. I don't know why he repeats himself here. And for that of the crocodile in particular. Is that the sea dragon? I don't know. 
Like, did Good he question. actually repeat himself, but I wonder. not by name? Just, just more clearly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's also for the treatment of serpiginous or sordid ulcers. I don't know what kind of ulcers those were. And dog bites. For ulcerations and painful afflictions of the mouth and ears. It is a marvelously useful remedy. It is also highly useful for the cure of dysentery. Someone should have told those Oregon Trail people that. Hmm. Even when ulceration has attacked the intestines. Injections are also made of it for sciatica and for celic fluxes of an inveterate nature. You know, upside Tommy. Oh, I, I, I was trying know. to piece together those words. Okay, uh, sure. A persistent upset tummy is what I'm guessing it means. But yeah. Yeah. So, um, sea dragons and dog bites and treats sheep, but only sheep. And also don't say its name or something. Yeah, that part's interesting. Has it take you by surprise? Maybe it's like a placebo. If Maybe. they knew what you were really treating them with, it wouldn't work. Right. Maybe. Good point. All right. So after Rome, um, so in 1268 CE, Austria, well people that were in Austria, <laughs> their salt, in their salt mines, they found kind of a new and more efficient way to get their salt. They started flooding the mine shafts with water and then just pumping out that brine instead of having to take the rocks out. Okay. Um, but after the fall of the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean Sea was still the center of Europe's salt trade. Sure. In 1281 CE, the Venetian government started subsidizing salt shipments, which made Venice the salt center of the Mediterranean. Um, in 1295, a merchant named Marco Polo, you may have heard of him. Who? <laughs> Marco Polo. Yeah, I kind of wonder We'd how really his name him. became a child's game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, who is, by the way, you know, Venetian. Mm -hmm. um, he returned from China and told stories of how much money was being made from salt there and Kublai Khan's great wealth from the salt trade, which I feel like is a familiar sounding name, but yeah. I didn't have time to go into that. Um, so there were two small, they, they, they named them as small. I don't know what that means. But anyways, Italian city states slash countries. I don't know. Yep. I'm going to say city state. Um, mm. Venice and Genoa. Yep. That were fighting for centuries to control the Mediterranean salt. And in 1380, Venice defeats Genoa and remains dominant for the next century. So Venice obviously is the current day city of venice and more place i don't know this yeah. very well but everett the plays a lot of you know games historical yeah. video games and he could probably tell us a little bit more about where genoa and venice were exactly yeah well so if, if you think about modern day italy yes and think about it jutting out into the mediterranean sea yes the uh east side creates a kind of like a inlet of water the adriatic sea the adriatic sea yeah and um you know at the mouth of the adriatic sea is where like greece is and that type of thing and at the very top at the very very top is venice and in fact there's a nicely protected island right at the top where where the city of venice actually is and that's where the capital was for a long time and the venetians owned countryside um in like right at the, at the north part there and down the um eastern side of the Adriatic Sea. Okay. And then Genoa bordered it and goes all the way from the kind of like the west side of Italy. We're still talking the, the north part of it, but the west side over to the east side and was on the Adriatic Sea as well. Okay. So it was like a band so of the north part of Italy. They're both more on the Adriatic side there. Yeah, Genoa went from 
coast to coast. Okay. So, um, at this time, Venetian merchants like the aforementioned Marco Polo um, were traveling huge distances overland to get the valuable silk and spices from Asia. Um, And that meant they needed a lot of preserved food. Preserved with salt, of course. But then something happens in 1488. A Portuguese sea captain named Bartholomew Dia found a, a much faster and cheaper way to go. So he sailed south from Portugal, follows down along the west coast of Africa, around the south tip of Africa, then mm-hmm. heads north up the east coast of Africa, sails through the Indian Ocean to get to Asia. Right. Um, so now the nations on the Atlantic Ocean, like Portugal, France, Spain, Holland, and England, yep. saw a chance to shift the balance of power from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic ports. So they sent explorers like Christopher Columbus and John Cabot to the New World and greatly expanded the world trade of furs and cods. And I didn't realize this about furs, but both of those goods had to be salted for shipping. Oh, really? Yes. I guess they just weren't completely processed yet. I don't know. I don't know the the story, but they both had to be salted for shipping. Okay. Um, So by the 16th century those northern countries, England, Holland, and the Scandinavian countries now, they are catching just huge numbers of fish to trade in Europe. Just astonishing. From the 16th to 18th centuries, 60% of all the fish eaten in Europe was cod. Wow. Most of the remaining 40% was herring. Okay. All of it needed to be cured by salt, both for taste and transport. (laughs) They didn't like to eat it without the salt. The problem was fish was easier to get for these countries than salt. Okay. So only Southern Europe has enough sun and the dry weather to make the sea salt, you know. Required. Yeah. yeah. So so they needed to make alliances. So here's another importance of salt in history. It forced alliances to bring the salt and the fish together. The English made a treaty with the Portuguese. Um, Many northern countries bought salt from a Germanic trade organization called the Hanseatic League, which dominated commercial activity in northern Europe from the 13th to 15th centuries and, you know, still was important after that, but they were formed as early as the 13th century. Um, And uh, and that brings us to France, because France has some interesting interesting involvement with salt. Okay. Um, So... Another example of leaders using salt to raise money for war is France's Louis IX. So this is way back in 1246 CE. Um, he established the, I'm not going to say it properly because it's a French word, Igamort Salt Works to raise money for the Crusades, basically. Um, and in France, they uh, had these really cool, ornate salt dispensers on royal tables that were called nef um just n-e-f n-e-f-s nefs okay um and it's an old french word for ship and that's what they that's what they were they were like these model big model ships made of precious metals like these ornate ships that would be on the table and that the nef was always placed near the king um because it was also a symbol of the quote ship of state and they would put they would like salt in them, like a little drawer and have salt in them. I mean, sometimes there were other spices in there. Okay. Um, they were just super fancy spice dispensers, really. Um, 
I encourage you to Google pictures of them because they're beautiful. Like, just like gold and jeweled. Like, wow. Anyways, the salt in the Neff symbolized preservation and good health and the stability of the state and all that kind of thing. Um, the Neff also sometimes had a small drawer for antidote to poison. Hmm. Which, I good mean... Call. I doubt there were actual antidotes to poisons because they didn't know anything sure. about that. But something that they thought, like they would put bezoars in there. You know, something that they thought were antidotes to poison. Um, so here's a fun fact or odd. Uh, odd fact? Mummies um, weren't like Egyptian mummies. Weren't the only bodies preserved by salt in history. So in 1670, France revised its criminal code to basically enforce laws against suicide. Oh. Yeah. So if you committed suicide, your body was to be salted and preserved and displayed. Well, first they brought before a judge and then displayed publicly. So the judge would sentence your dead body to public display of a certain number of years and it would be different for different people, which I don't understand. They did like a real trial and sentenced your body to a certain amount of public display to shame okay. people to not commit suicide, I guess. Interesting. No word on how well that worked to dissuade any suicides, but... I mean, yeah, what if you were seeking like infamy in your death? <laughs> don't ask me. I wasn't there. Okay. Um. So then, you know, in the 1600s, 1700s time period, France was having some issues with their prisons. Two two real big problems here. They were overcrowded. And they were horrendously dirty and dangerous and just mm, That's awful. not a good combination, by the no. way. So this meant that lots of prisoners died before they made it to their court dates. And for some reason, the French ordered these bodies preserved in salt so they would keep until their trials. Because, again, they seem to really like putting dead bodies on trial. Um, I mean, they don't talk back. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. So one famous story is about a man named Maurice Lacour. In 1784, in the town of something I'm going to say terribly, Cornouaille, um, Monsieur Lacour dies in prison and was ordered salted for his trial. But then there was this bureaucratic error and they either didn't set a trial date or forgot the trial date or were too full of trials. Anyways, seven years later... A prison guard discovers the body, which has been salted, but also fermented in beer. And they decide at this point that they're just going to drop the charges against him. Oh, so he went free. Yeah. His Lucky body him. definitely got buried. Oh, I, good for him. Yeah. Um, I could not, I tried, I really did, but I could not find any sort of reasoning behind why they put dead bodies on trial. That's a... Okay. Yeah. Have to find a historian for that one. I guess so. So, um, even as the salt trade is becoming more international and things are progressing, rulers are still going to be using salt to raise money in their countries. King Louis XIV raised the taxes on salt for many of his subjects, not just in France, but abroad. Um, and that caused people to start illegally smuggling salt to avoid the high taxes. So, they would smuggle the salt across rivers at night. They would hide salt in shipments of salt fish, which I guess is a decent hiding place. Yeah, okay. Um, concealed. There's lots of stories about salt being concealed by women in their undergarments Ooh. to smuggle it. 
Um, so they created this entirely new branch of the police to stop salt smuggling specifically. Um, by the late 18th century, 3,000 French citizens a year were being arrested for salt-related crimes, um, for which the punishment ranged from fines to death. I imagine that's one of the reasons their prisons were overcrowded. Yeah. And then they had to preserve them in salt. Isn't that kind of ironic? That's kind so of So it's funny. like the salt that they captured in illicit activity was then used to like preserve the body so they could go to trial. I mean, that'd be a pretty funny story if that's true, right? Yeah. That'd be, that'd be good. Um, so in 1790, so this is all stemming from the French Revolution, which begins 1789, uh, salt taxes are abolished. Okay. But don't celebrate too soon. In 1804, Napoleon comes along and reinstates salt taxes because he's got a lot of wars to pay for. Yeah, he does. Yeah. It wasn't until 1946 that the French salt taxes are finally abolished for good. And I say that, but... Who knows? Who knows? But if there's one thing the French are really good at, it's protesting. So I think that they would they would find a way to get rid of them again. If, well, know. everything has to be a cycle. So, yeah. It's possible. Um, so moving along to the Americas, um, we're, we're following the same patterns as in Europe. I mean, the Aztecs in Mexico, the mines in Central America, the Incas in Peru, and the Chipcha in the Colombia were all dominant civilizations by controlling the salt trade. Uh, when they lost their power, they lost control of the salt. The Aztecs actually have a fertility goddess whose name I didn't even write down because I normally try to look at those pronunciation guide things on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And on this one, it had pronunciation question mark beside the name in brackets. And I was like, well, if you don't even know Wikipedia, I am not trying. There's too many X's and H's and like, so the Aztecs have a fertility goddess. Great. Who is specifically responsible for salt, salt, like, and salt water. Um, her and her two sisters provided humans with the three necessities of life, which they felt were salt, water, and food. Oh. Yes. Okay. There's sure. some evidence the Mayans began making salt in Central America as early as 1000 BCE. Um, and now, you know, jumping to North America, the British arrive in North America and, of course, they want to control the salt trade there, too. Yeah. So in 1607, Captain John Smith of Pocahontas fame establishes the colony of Jamestown in Virginia and starts a salt work there. In 1660, the Dutch started a salt work for their colony of New Amsterdam, mm -hmm. which is current day New York, um, by granting the right to make salt on a small island nearby, which is Coney Island. Oh, Coney Island. Yeah. Cool. Um, so New Englanders were making a lot of money trading cod and furs Virginia was making a lot of money and becoming famous for their ham. Oh. However, most of the salt was being brought over from other British colonies in the Caribbean, Caribbean or directly from England's main salt work, which was in Liverpool. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so when America declares its independence, their salt supply was suddenly gone. Right. Because it wasn't being produced there. Or enough of it. Right, but also because it was all coming from the country that they declared war against. Well, yeah. So George Washington's army lacked salt, which they needed to make gunpowder to preserve food, to maintain horses, and they used it to treat wounds. They did. Okay. So in 1775, the Second Continental Congress 
provides subsidies to American salt makers, which is basically paying rewards to the colonists to immediately get some salt works going. So soon America did have its own salt supply. They paid indigenous peoples to take their salt, basically, and they didn't pay them very much, but they did pay them to take their salt. Um, After the Revolutionary War, America's growing and transporting salt is becoming a problem. Um, The War of 1812 comes along and the British attempt to cut off Cape Cod from supplying salt due, of course, to the war. Um, So a system of canals is built, starting with the Erie Canal in 1817. It is going to provide a water route for salt to travel from the main area for salt back then was a salt springs on the southern end of the Onondaga Lake in central New York. Um, so they could transport it now to the Great Lakes and the Midwest and the Hudson River and the New York Harbor and out, you know, to the Atlantic. Yeah. So now they had a good method of transporting their own salt around their uh, territories. Um, and this allowed meatpacking to become a major industry in the Midwest since meatpacking requires tons of salt or did require. And a disgusting industry at that, which you can hear all about if yeah. you go uh, back and listen to our Poison Squad episode. You know, I'm trying to reference as many of our old episodes you, as possible. There's been quite a few. It's been good. Because it's number 50. Yeah. And that's exciting. Um, so, ooh, fun fact. Got another one for you. So the roads in North America and the towns weren't really plaid out ahead of time placement-wise. They're kind of haphazard. And this is because many roads are just widened trails um, that the animals had made while they were looking for salt. So people followed these trails and decided that the places that had... Salt licks at the end were good locations for their towns. Sure. So a wide road near Lake Erie made by, I'm calling them bison. Bison's the correct word for the North American animal. Um, you know, became a road and the salt lick found at the end of that became the city of Buffalo, New York. Because they called it the wrong name. But still, that's how Buffalo, New York got its name. Yeah, very cool. Um, okay, some more fun America salt facts. In 1859, the richest vein of silver ever discovered was uh, found in California, the Comstock Lode, and they used salt to separate the ore, and that really drove up the price of salt in California. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1861, four days after the start of the Civil War, Lincoln orders a naval blockade to stop shipments of salt from Liverpool from reaching the Confederacy, which puts them in... In a, you know, bad position. Yes. Um, In 1924, the Morton Salt Company, um, at the request of the Michigan Medical Association, started adding iodine to their salt. Iodized salt quickly becomes the leading tool worldwide to fight against iodine deficiency. Right. And now, if you always kind of wondered what that was all about, iodized salt. So iodine, um, again, we talked about this in our Chernobyl episode. Yeah. Iodine um, is needed for thyroid hormone production. We don't make iodine. We need to eat it. Um, And if you don't have enough iodine in your body, you can't make thyroid hormone, which you need for lots of things. So um, basically you end up with hypothyroidism, not enough thyroid hormone. Um, So that means your metabolic activities are limited. So thyroid hormones run your metabolism, basically. If you don't get enough thyroid hormone, you're going to be cold. You're going to be tired. Your skin gets dry. Your brain stops working correctly. You're going to get forgetful. You're going to get depressed. Your digestion stops working. You get constipated. Just all these bad things happen to you. 
Um, it can also, like having not enough iodine, uh, for instance, as a pregnant woman, can cause intellectual disabilities in the infants. Okay. Um, another thing you've probably heard of is a goiter. Mm-hmm. So having not enough iodine can give you a goiter, like this big lump coming out of your neck. And that's because that's why your thyroid is. But why? Why does not having enough iodine give you a big lump in your neck? Why does it? <laughs> so basically, it's not getting enough iodine. So it's sending a single signal to the brain being like, I need iodine and the brain's like all right i'm gonna send you a, a hormone to get bigger because clearly the issue is just that you can't find it so the bigger you get maybe maybe you'll be able to find some more like there's this feedback loop okay i don't have enough okay get bigger i don't have enough okay get bigger um so it's like the brain is sensing that the thyroid hormone is too low and it's like okay get bigger to make me some thyroid hormone and they're like ah okay so it just becomes this huge lump um, and the only way to treat it is just iodine. iodine. Um, yeah. So there's the issue is that a lot of the less developed parts of the world still don't have iodized salt. Um, so about 30% of the world's population is still at risk for iodine deficiency today. Wow. That much. Yeah. It's not good. No. So as we're getting closer to modern day, the role of salt's going to change, right? So in the early 19th century, there's a Frenchman named Nicolas Appert who discovers that food can be preserved in airtight jars that were heated. So this leads to canning, and that greatly decreases the need for salt in food preservation. In 1803, Nicolas Appert starts selling the French Navy beef and vegetables preserved by canning, and this new industry pops up. A uh, hundred years later, 1925... Clarence Birdseye, who is um, a scientist in Gloucester, discovers how to rapidly freeze food for preservation. And now we have lots of methods to keep food from rotting. Yeah. So scientists were going to start learning salt could be broken down into sodium and chloride and discovered uses for these things. In 1807, Sir Humphrey Davy, who is a British chemist, isolated sodium from salt. Three years later, he isolates chlorine. And that begins the salt-based chemical industry. Um, so now we're making bleach and explosives and chlorine tablets for pools and spas. And we're making fabric dye, pest control products, pharmaceuticals. And, you know, importantly, of course, bicarbonate of soda for soft drinks. All this stuff is made by, by splitting salt and isolating the components of it. Right. So it's still useful, but it's for a whole new range yeah. of things. Um and now I would like to go on a, a bit of a tangent here okay, and let's talk do that. about ketchup. Mm, yummy. Ketchup. I mean, nowadays it's kind of yummy, but... So ketchup Ugh. did not start off as a tomato-based product. No, it's just any vegetable, right? No, no. It dates back to ancient China. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't too much different from that garum, garum product or, you know, even the soy sauce. So basically, um, 300 BCE-ish. It starts as this paste that's made from, like, fermented fish entrails with tons of salt. Yeah. And uh, it was initially known as kochiap or ketsiap, something like that. Um, then an Indonesian fish sauce pops up called kekap ikan, um, probably stemming from the original Chinese sauce. And sometimes in, it is just referred to as spiced sauce. 
Um, if you saw a recipe for spice sauce, it was probably a variety of ketchup. Okay. And sometimes it was called high East India sauce. Oh. Yeah. So the one thing all the recipes had in common was lots of salt. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then the first recipe for ketchup appeared in a cookbook in 1758 by one Eliza Smith. Um, the cookbook was called The Complete Housewife. And the recipe had anchovies, cloves, ginger, and pepper. And then you'd eat it with, like, meat or fish, largely to cover up that delicious taste of rotting meat. Yep. Yeah. Yummy. So in the 18th century, there's all kinds of recipes for ketchup floating around. Uh, some are made with oysters, some uh, with mussels. The Jane Austen's favorite type of ketchup was mushroom ketchup, by the way, yeah. in case anyone was wondering. Well, I was. Uh, there was walnut ketchup and lemon ketchup and celery ketchup and fruits even, like plums or peaches. Mm-hmm. Fermentation was a part of the recipe a lot of the time, but always you needed a ton of salt. Yeah. Okay. Tomato ketchup starts in America. Yes. Which makes sense because tomatoes are, you know, from the New World. They're from the Americas, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, they had they had tomatoes in Europe for a long time before that. So why was no one eating tomatoes in ketchup? Why do you think it took this long? Mm, I don't know. I assume that they just managed to eat their tomatoes instead of letting them rot. No. They thought tomatoes were poisonous. I guess that's a good reason, too. So, because a lot of people ate off pewter plates, they were they were having an issue. Yeah. So, I don't know if you know what's, what was in pewter. Lead. Lead was in pewter, yes. Yeah. And tomatoes are acidic. Yeah. Pretty acidic, actually. So, if you put very acidic food on pewter plates, then some of the lead can leach out of the pewter into your food. So people would get sick after eating tomatoes and they're like, tomatoes are poisonous. Mm-hmm. I hate tomatoes. I get the logic. Yeah. So I looked it up though. You don't need to worry. They stopped putting lead in pewter in 1974. Oh, so we've had lots of time without it then. I can't believe it was that late. Anyways, well, I, mean, yeah. I guess lead, lead and gasoline. Everything. That's true. Yeah. That's true. It was around the time we finally started taking lead out of everything. Yeah. Um, so the first published recipe for tomato ketchup was written in 1812 by a prominent Philadelphia doctor named James Meese around the very small time period when people thought ketchup might be medicine. Um, and it included, quote, love apples. That was the, a name for tomatoes? Apparently because people thought they were an aphrodisiac, which really confuses me. Because yeah. they went real quickly from being poisonous to being, you know, aphrodisiac. That was real quick. Well, I mean, I think anything that's kind of like on the red. edge or... It's red, so it must oh, okay. be sexy. okay. That too. I don't sure. know. I don't know why they thought it was an aphrodisiac, but... Um, so the recipe goes as follows. Quote, slice the apples thin. And a reminder, they're talking about tomatoes when they say apples. Sure. And over each layer, sprinkle a little salt. Cover them. Let them lie 24 hours and beat them well. And simmer them half an hour in a bell metal kettle... Add mace and allspice. When cold, add two cloves of raw shallots, cut small, and half a gill of brandy to each bottle, which must be corked tight and kept in a cool place. Ketchup. Yeah. I don't think it sounds much like ketchup still, but... No. I think our modern ketchup has a lot of (laughs) sugar versus... Yeah, it also doesn't have alcohol in it, but... Yeah. Um, So, salt was also really important... um, 
to industry. Let me explain here. So there's these things called salt domes. Um, so while most underground salt is mined from these large shallow beds that are spread over a wide area, occasionally the salt is really compressed into, into columns that are going to go several kilometers deep into the earth. And the top of the dome pushes right up to the surface and makes kind of a hill, like a round hill with a really thin layer of topsoil. And geologists were fascinated by the salt domes for a while. And no one really knew much about them until the 20th century because drills weren't good. Sure. Drills didn't go deep. So they're like, cool, there's salt here. So in 1859, there's a guy named Edwin Drake. And he drilled 21 meters on the edge of a salt dome in Titusville, Pennsylvania. Geologists were like, what are you doing? You're a fool. This is a waste of your time, yada, yada, yada. Well, he discovers oil in the dome. And then in 1901, Patillo Higgins and Anthony Lucas think, what if this is a thing with salt domes? What if oil sure. is just in salt domes? Well, you say sure, but again, people apparently all made fun of them. Geologists were like, you're dumb. Yeah, well, you're I wasting mean, your time. I can see that. That's fine. Yeah. Right. Um, but they discover oil as well in a famous salt dome in, called Spindletop in Texas. So, so much oil gushes out of that salt dome that that was the beginning of the age of petroleum. Quote. That was the start of it. So, scientists investigated the phenomenon and realized that the salt crystals in salt domes joined together to form this impenetrable glass-like wall. And then other organic material gets trapped next to the dome and slowly decomposes over millions of years and turns into oil and gas. Mm -hmm. So, yes, this is a feature of salt domes. Um... And then soon people discovered that salt is everywhere. Like salt beds are all over the planet. Like they thought they were kind of isolated, um, but actually salt deposits stretch for thousands of kilometers. Uh, in the US, there's one bed that covers the entire Great Lakes region. There's another bed that begins in Eastern France and goes all the way through Germany, Austria, and Southern Poland. Wow. So like, yeah, it's not, it's not rare. Um, one of the last, or the last story that I'll tell you is about Gandhi's salt march. Sure. Which I had not heard of until now. So I'm glad I read this. So salt um, was, was symbolic at this point, right? We're not saying it's economically powerful, but it is still symbolically powerful. By the 1900s, the British, they've been present in India for centuries and they've ruled India since 1858. In 1930, the Indian National Congress meets to try to be like, how are we going to gain our independence from the British? And there's, you know, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, known by Mahatma, which means the great soul. He comes in there and meets with the Congress and says, salt's the way that we're going to spread the word of our cause. Okay. So Gandhi explains the average Indian person is angry large, I mean, for lots of reasons, but there's a large reason is because the British banned the local manufacture of salt in India in 1863, which meant the Indian people, even though there was lots of available salt in India, had to pay for salt from Liverpool at very wow. high prices. Yeah. So I know I mentioned it before, but the Liverpool Salt Works, England's biggest main salt work, was established in 1207 CE when King John of England, grants permission to begin the port of Liverpool. And it's one of the world's biggest salt ports. Um, 
So back to 1930. March 12, 1930, Gandhi announced to the Indian, British, and American press that he intends to walk 390 kilometers to a place called Dandi on the Arabian Sea, where he was going to break the law by making salt. So he started with 78 followers, and by the time he reaches the Arabian Sea, which took 25 days, he had thousands on his march, including journalists from all over the place. Sure, yeah. So Gandhi walked the beach there. He picked up a piece of salt. Someone shouts, hail deliverer. And his followers also start to pick up salt. And Gandhi says, I made salt, which I dispute the making part. But yes, symbolism is all we're going for here, right? So all across India, people started celebrating along other parts of the coast. People start picking up salt as well. Demonstrations begin in the cities. and, And this is kind of symbolically the beginning of independent like India's independence movement. Makes sense. 17 years later in 1947, India would get its independence and it actually became a pretty major salt producer since then. I mean, you can imagine it's a dry place with lots of coastline, right? Yeah, it makes sense. There's a lot of places to get salt. Um, so that's kind of all. That's, that's all I've got in this episode. I do really hope uh, to do more food episodes in the future and find some cool things. Like I do want to talk about like movement of food ingredients around the world. Like we were talking about tomatoes came from the Americas, but obviously Italy got them at some point. So things like that do interest me. And I would like to do more of that in the future. If you guys like that kind of thing, then you should stick around. But I do know next episode will be about the color colors of our sky um if you would find that interesting to learn about i do want to let you all know we do have an email address if you want to give us suggestions of topics or comments or corrections or anything like that it's teach me something for the number four not the word at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you Uh, And I want to say thank you so much for listening to Teach Me Something once again. Mm -hmm. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm